High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. This morning I thought we would cover a part of the world and a people that we don't actually know much about, but are very much now in the headlines because they are disrupting shipping in the Red Sea, which flows over into disrupting world trade in general. Uh, And I'm obviously talking about uh, the Houthi rebels in Yemen. And I thought it was an ideal opportunity to get a colleague who is tasked with geopolitical issues to talk about Lehman, a bit about the history, the politics, and uh, how it become how it comes to be the sort of almost the, the sort of fly in the larger global ointment, if I can put it that way. And to this end, I welcome a familiar voice and a familiar personality, and that is uh, my colleague uh, Nicholas Lorimer. Nick, welcome. And thanks for having me back. And to you, I'm really, really looking at a sort of history of Yemen and much of which will explain the dynamics that led to the rise and the rise of the Houthis, the, the, their sort of dominance in the civil war in, in the last few years and their position now as a sort of satellite of the Iranians. So I just want to talk a little bit about where Yemen comes from, kind of from the beginning. It's one of those parts of the world that uh, once upon a time was, I think, very important and then sort of fell by the wayside to where it's just a sort of stop along the way of bigger currents. Um, But there was a time that that Yemen was actually one of the sort of early and wealthiest places in Arabia. The entire Arabian Peninsula was probably the richest, the best fed, the most populous area. And even to this day, um, I think it's the second most populous country in the Arabian Peninsula, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. But uh, there's evidence of sort of larger settlements based on agriculture going back as far as 5000 B.C., um, the first mention of it in a sort of historical document we have or in, a, in sort of literature we have is from the, the, the Bible, where it's very likely that the Sabaean kingdom in 1200 BC was actually the kingdom of Sheba referred to in the Bible. Uh, it would actually become a Jewish state for a while. Um, there was a kingdom in Yemen, in the northern part of Yemen, called the Himyarite kingdom, which popped up around about 100 BC. Um, and in 380 AD, it converted to Judaism for a time. And in fact, um, it built a number of Jewish uh, temples and synagogues and that sort of thing there. Although uh, Judaism, as we sort of understand it today, wasn't quite the same. It, was, you know, it, had, it hadn't uh, had some of the currents and ideas that have appeared in modern Judaism. So it was not entirely the same as what you would call today, but it still considered itself Jewish and had a Jewish um, uh, population. Um, they clashed with the Christian Ethiopian kingdom of Aksum in the sort of 500s and in fact were conquered by them. Uh, they were then taken over by the Persians and they sort of re-enter the history. They kind of fall away for a, way, uh, for a while there. But one of the things that Yemen profited off of a lot was actually the trade between the Roman world in the Mediterranean and India. And there's a lot of Roman coins in India that probably would have at some point gone through trading ports in Yemen. In fact, the furthest outpost of the Roman Empire was on an island off the coast of Yemen, which was hunting pirates. Um, And piracy has been a big part of Yemen's story ever since because it's on this vital trade network between East and West. It has always been very important to world commerce flows. Um, 
So it, it converts to Islam fairly early on. It's allegedly converted by Muhammad's cousin Ali. And uh, Yemi, Yemeni tribesmen then actually go out to a lot of the rest of the world. They migrate into places like Syria and North Africa and even southern Spain um, as they, they kind of follow the Muslim armies around as they uh, conquer the world and create the first Islamic caliphate. Uh, but at this point, sort of Yemen comes to be known for really one thing and one thing only. And that is that it is the world's monopoly on coffee. So coffee actually comes from Ethiopia originally, yeah. but the first people to kind of really trade it and spread it around the world and, and uh, take control of that trade were the various little kingdoms in Yemen and the tribal groups there. So and I'm sorry, just if you, look at a, if you look at a map of the region, um, Yem, sort of Yemen is literally a hop and a skip across the Red Sea to the Horn of Africa. Yes, so it's it's that, kind of that, at the crossroads. Exactly, it's at the crossroads of Africa, um, the Arabian Peninsula, and sort of further East Asia, because there have been these very, very old trading networks that go up through the Red Sea past Yemen um, from the Indian Ocean. So it's it's always been kind of a stop on the way um, uh, for all of the world's sort of civilizations and trading up up until even the modern day. Um, so they, they actually dominated in many ways the coffee trade up into the 1600s. They, uh, coffee had this sort of interesting character that it spread throughout the Islamic world and it actually had a stigma against it in Christian Europe for a time because it was considered a, a sort of a Muslim drink. But over time, um, I think after one of the popes decided to start championing its drinking, by the mid-1600s, coffee was pretty well established in Europe as a thing that a lot of people drank. Uh, and, and Yemen would still be a big part of this trade. Some of it was, was exported to India and other parts of the world. But uh, it, it was kind of still a, a big player until Brazil began to grow coffee in the 17 and 1800s. And then today, Brazil produces like something like half of all the coffee in the world. So Yemen's kind of fallen completely by the wayside on that one. Um, Yemen also has been a battleground for big empires. I mentioned earlier Ethiopians and Persians fighting over it, and uh, it also got fought over by Romans, and later the Ottoman Empire and the Portuguese would struggle for control of it. And kind of in the 1600s, Yemen sort of became a bit independent, and Yemen has this curious geography where it's got these sort of flatter uh, lowland areas with big deserts to the north and the east, and then it's got these highlands kind of sort of in the middle northern bit. And those two parts of the country have always had a very different outlook on the world to, uh, together. They've often been part of different kingdoms. They've often um, had different religious views. Uh, so, for example, in modern Yemen, the highlands tend to be Shiite, um, a particular group of Shiites called the Zaidis. And the lowlands tend to be Sha'afi Muslims uh, of the Sunni branch of Islam. So there's often been a bit of tension between those two when you've had imperial powers trying to control the sea lanes then, so they take over the coast, but being unable to conquer those highlands in, uh, in the center of, of, of sort of central north region of Yemen. So the Ottomans eventually managed to take over the north of the country, including that, that difficult highland bit that I was talking about, but it's a very unstable control in the 1800s. And the British, in order to once again, protect against pirates, which is sort of a recurring theme of this part of the world, uh, and also create a place to refuel their um, 
the steamships with coal uh, take over southern Yemen um, and create something called the Aden Protectorate because the main city was based around the city of Aden. So that goes on until the 60s when the Ottoman, well, the Ottoman controlled bit slips away from the Ottoman Empire in 1918 and it becomes the kingdom of, of, uh, uh, of northern Yemen or, or the... It's, it's got a much more complicated name, but let's not get into that. Um, and the South also gets independence from Britain in the 60s as well. So the North becomes the Republic of North Yemen and the South becomes the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which is kind of like a Soviet communist type state. These two halves of Yemen both agree that they should form together to be one country, but they can't really get on the same page. And once again, we see this sort of uh, internal battle between them, between those people living in the highlands who tend to be more traditional focused, they're Shiite in general rather than Sunni Muslim. They tend to have um, a more sort of old fashioned view of the world, whereas the people on the coasts are very eager to embrace the Arab nationalism of uh, Abdul Nasser from Egypt and stuff like that. Uh, so this division kind of continues for a while, but it begins to collapse in the 90s when the Soviet Union falls apart. It's no longer its puppet state in South Yemen decides that it's finally going to unite with North Yemen. And one of the reasons for that is because both paths of Yemen have discovered oil and they're very eager to kind of pull their resources together and make uh, take big advantage of that. But then we get to the 90s. So Yemen is now newly united and uh, it's under a lot of influence from Saudi Arabia, particularly the Sunni parts along the coasts. But there's a lot of discontent about this in the sort of northern highlands of, of, of Yemen, particularly along the Saudi border. And a guy uh, from uh, called Hussein al-Houthi, who is from a relatively small tribe called the Houthis, decides to start, he's the son of a cleric, and he decides to start what he calls the Houthi movement, or what, what it's called the Houthi movement. They call themselves Ansar Allah, which means the supporters of God. They're originally sort of a youth-focused movement. They create school clubs and summer camps to promote a Shiite revival. It's supposed to be like a sort of religious revival group. But very quickly, they begin to import uh, a lot of quite radical literature into the group, um, very, very heavily influenced by Hezbollah from Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And this moves from being a sort of anti-Western, anti-Saudi, anti-Israel uh, group into being an anti-government group, saying we're actually going to, you know, we're, we're representing the, the Shiite peoples of the highlands. Uh, and in 2004, there's a crackdown on the group by the dictator of Yemen at the time, and they start a civil war. They basically go into the highlands and they start fighting with the government. That goes on pretty inconclusively until the 2010s. But in this period of radicalization, um, the Houthis adopt their very infamous slogan, which uh, translated from Arabic is, God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. And they adopt a very sort of anti-Semitic worldview, thinking that, talking about how the Jews are the real masters of the world and sort of, you know, old tropes in anti-Semitism that, that I'm sure people are very familiar with. Uh, anyway, in 2011, the Arab Spring happens all across the Arab world, and it causes a lot of chaos. A lot of these old dictatorships fall apart. And Yemen is no exception where the dictator under pressure... Um, from his own people and also from his allies in Saudi Arabia, decides to resign. And he leaves and a new sort of 
cobbled together coalition government is formed, but there's total anarchy and chaos. No one seems to be able to get full control of the country. Mm-hmm. And in this power vacuum, the Houthis who have been sort of fighting this guerrilla war in the mountains with a lot of help from Iran in terms of training, equipment, military stuff, suddenly take over a big chunk of Yemen. And in 2015, they capture the capital of Yemen, Sana'a, in, which is in the sort of middle of the country. And they declare themselves the new government of Yemen. Now, they are not the internationally recognized government of Yemen. That still exists. Uh, but Yemen has been embroiled in a very brutal civil war since then. Um, I think at the moment there's a, a bit of a ceasefire and there's looks towards kind of cobbling together some sort of negotiated cease, uh, end to the conflict. But uh, the, the, the civil war gets very complicated very quickly. It's got all sorts of little pieces who are all fighting with each other. Al-Qaeda is involved. The Islamic State is involved. The Houthis are involved. Saudi Arabia and the UAE get involved. Um, UAE decides to back a different half of the government in 2017. And so the government side splits again. And it, it, it just it gets very, very messy. And as a result of this conflict and the Saudi blockade, um, and also the Houthis' uh, appropriation of aid, Yemen suffered a very terrible famine um, in the late 2010s. Uh, and in fact, it's still in a very bad place today. It's a very water-scarce country. It's difficult to grow your own food, particularly when um, everyone is bombing and shooting at each other. So the Houthis have been growing in strength for a long time now. They basically refer to themselves as the government of Yemen, although, like I said, they're not actually recognized. Uh, internationally as such and when um, the uh, latest Israel-Gaza conflict started uh, very likely with the either support, encouragement of or instruction by Iran the Houthis began using some of the anti-ship missiles that they had been given to start striking ships in the uh, the Gulf of Aden the Red Sea that kind of area around Yemen close to the territory they control and they've been relatively successful at actually disrupting shipping lanes some insurance companies have said they don't really want to send their ships through the Suez Canal um, and this is one of the most important shipping lanes in the world it's I think, something like more than a fifth of world trade goes through this area so yes. if insurance companies I aren't sorry I'm just saying I assume that it does because it's, it's it is because it's Central, it links through to towards Europe, and and they don't right. have to if go down apes and of, of, on either exactly. the south like, like, like those so, ancient trade routes. If you're trying to get goods from India or China to Europe, or vice versa, the easiest way to do it is to go through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, and it's really narrow. It's well, relatively narrow at that point, so that's why it's such a uh, dangerous thing for them to be able to control. So the Americans and the British and I think a bunch of other countries have all been um, trying to protect ships, shooting down these missiles. Uh, They've been mostly successful, and yet it doesn't seem to have really stopped the attacks. And then the Americans struck targets controlled by the Houthis uh, over the past couple of weeks um, with a bit more force. So it's interesting how there's sort of similar themes. Um, Today, if you were to look at a map of what the Houthis control and what... uh, uh, the, the government of Yemen or the governments of Yemen control that are internationally recognized, it falls actually quite close to that north-south line that Yemen was divided along. Um, you see the sort of almost the geography coming out in the politics in some ways. There's also this theme of once again that the Yemenis are, or the, the Houthis rather, are engaging in a kind of piracy. Um, in fact, they've even tried to board some of the, the container ships uh, and uh, 
I think there was footage of an Indian Navy vessel uh, uh, rescuing one of those container ships from a boarding attempt. So, you know, going all the way back to the Roman period, there's sort of piracy and this crucial choke point. Um, so while obviously there's a lot of uh, very current reasons for why this conflict is happening the way it is and uh, why the Houthis are getting involved, um, a big part of it is also these kind of very long-standing trends in Yemeni history uh, that mm. it has often been this battleground for, for, for rival powers. In, in this case, it's between Saudi Arabia and between Iran. But in the past, it was between Portuguese and Ottomans and Romans and Persians and Christians and Jews. It's, so it's, uh, it's quite a tragic history because in, in this whole course of history and all of this conflict, Yemen has gone from being one of the more developed parts of Arabia to being one of the poorest, most miserable countries on earth to live in these days. Um, mm. it's, it's, uh, it has cholera outbreaks. As I said, it's had famine recently. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, you know, many, many people are suffering or have tried to flee the country. One gets the impression that it's the, the, since there seems to be a very strong religious base, um, it, it's probably not unnatural for the Houthis to embark on this action uh, because it, it's against it's against it's against the it's part against the West. It obviously include will cover a wider range of of, of the globe, but it also it's it's a message about their slogan and their feelings towards Israel and the Jews. Um, it almost gets the impression that it's the, you know, you've got the, 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 the small experienced grouping that has that the West has to take on. The West has to take it on with perhaps a degree of sophistication that is only helpful up to a point. So it's almost as if the, the Houthis, if they decided to stop tomorrow, the West would leave it, probably leave it at that because it's too much of a, 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 a it, it, it's complex. It's a bit like guerrilla warfare. And, and that's and that's what the Houthis have going for them. Yeah, I mean, these guys have been fighting some sort of guerrilla warfare on and off since 2004. So they're pretty uh, experienced now at, 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 at this fight. And uh, when you look at their kind of ideology and even their theology, um, the, the Zaidi branch of, of Shia Islam, kind of has always viewed itself as being sort of oppositional to some kind of oppressive outsider or something like that. So mm. it's very woven into their their identity, this idea of we are fighting against some sort of greater empire, greater injustice. And that has actually been a common thread all the way from when they fought the Ottomans till now, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is one of the reasons why those highland areas of Yemen have been so difficult for anyone to subdue over, over a long period of time. Um, but, you know, it's one thing being tough and willing to fight, and it's another thing to be able to actually shoot anti-ship missiles at passing mm. ships. Mm. Um, and on that front, the West has a lot more options to actually knock out that stuff. That tech is quite expensive and relatively sophisticated. Uh, and uh, if they... The potential to, to, to degrade their ability to actually act against shipping, I think, is quite high if they... Mm-hmm. Are able to find the targets, right? And and so what? So where does the where do the Houthis play a role as if as sort of satellite uh, entities on behalf of Iran? Um, is it are they very much embedded in the the Iranian ideology and form of politics, or is it kind of a, a relationship of convenience? And Iran doesn't quite have that level of. So, of control over them? I mean, for, for specifics on that, I'd have to leave it to an expert greater than me. But my understanding is that they are pretty tightly uh, close together in their 
in the way they do things. Uh, they're very clearly inspired by the Islamic Revolution. So the Islamic Revolution in Iran, their slogan is death to America, death to Israel, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see in the Houthi slogan, it's it's the sort of the same thing just with extras. Um, they have this origin as being uh, founded, um, taking inspiration from Hezbollah in particular, which is another Iranian kind of uh, puppet organization in Lebanon. So they, they have this... Um, very deep connection to Iran. They see themselves as part of, I think, the same sort of revolutionary struggle to create a, a sort of unified Islamic theocracy across the, the Middle East. Um, that being said, though, uh, you know, the politics in Yemen are very complicated because they're often tied to underlying sort of tribal and clan loyalties, which go back a very long way. There are sort of feuds and histories between some of these tribal groups that go back even to the, you know, sort of before the rise of Islam. Um, so that makes things a little bit more complicated to say what the Houthis will and won't do. Um, they have to, whatever actions they're doing on Iran's behalf, they also have to take in mind the sort of tribal leaders in their own territory and what they want. Um, and also, they are actually a very slightly different branch of Islam from the, the Iranians. So they're both Shiites, but within Shiite um, identity, they are... Uh, they have slightly different sects. So if you can imagine uh, the difference between Sunni and Protestant, uh, sorry, between Sunni and Shia is a little bit like between Catholic and Protestant, but then within Protestants, there's lots of little different churches that have different ideas. They're like two different Protestant churches in a sense. They agree on a lot, but they still have some differences. So they're not a thousand percent down the line agreed on everything. And I think they do have some capacity to act on their own. They have their own army. They have their own sources of funding. They control some oil wells. They're not completely dependent on, on, on foreign stuff. But at the end of the day, the thing that makes them go from, you know, a tribal confederation uh, based in the mountains of Yemen to being something that can threaten international shipping is the support of Iran. And just you... The other great difference is that the Iranians are not Arabs, they're Persians. And yes. Houthis are Arabs? So they, I, that, that's another kind of source of tension. Um, uh, often the, the, the Turks and the Persians have been accused by, by Arabs of having a sort of superiority complex towards them. Um, and while the Iranian regime influ uh, uh, puts the emphasis on its religious identity rather than its ethnic identity, from time to time, that kind of thing still comes out. I think that there is definitely a view in some of the more hardline parts of Iran that they are ultimately the heirs of some sort of Persian empire, that the Middle East is their natural domain. Um, and I'm sure at times that can rub the, the Arab Houthi groups up the, uh, up the wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you, um, it, it, I mean, it sounds like from, from all the sort of variables that you, you're mentioning that the Houthis are quite comfortable in operating on their own. And one would have assumed that this isn't, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I wouldn't have assumed that this is something Iran would have been, been that chuffed about because disrupting world trade concentrates not just Western mines, but Chinese mines and Indian mines, etc., etc. So, in other words, it, 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 it affects the West and, and the East together, even though you, those in the West, in the East rather, would be perhaps more sympathetic to the Houthi cause to prevent. Um, Shipping and and trade, particularly from east to to west, has got to be very so, shall we say annoying. Uh, 
I think I think the Iranians are mostly okay with it because they they view this as ultimately they're not that interested in the economic well-being of their own own country. Mm-hmm. Um, the Houthis are very clear that they don't attack certain ships. Oh, okay. For example, they don't attack any Iranian oil ships. They don't attack any um, Russian oil ships. Um, but there apparently was a request from the Chinese government to tell Iran to rein in some of the attacks. And that was ignored, which is interesting because China has been trying to increase its influence in the Middle East and has got good relations with Iran. So yeah. it's not clear exactly what happened there. Did the Houthis decide that, did they make a mistake? Did they decide to act on their own? Um, or did Iran just decide that actually it's not really going to listen to the Chinese because this is more important to it? Their, their, their goal in the region at the moment is to firstly, I think, increase their influence um, by using the Houthis as a sort of choke on world trade. They are saying to a lot of the anti-Israeli Islamic world uh, that we are, look at us, we are the strong horse, we are the powerful force here, look what we can do to global trade, just a few missiles and some of our friends in Yemen. Um, that's why you should back us, that's why you should listen to us, that's why you should come to us for support. So, so the rationale for that would then be the clear desire by Iran to become the dominant player in the Middle East, in other words, to challenge the, the dominance that's been that's help of the Saudis or, ones associated with Saudi Arabia or, or the Turks or even Israel um, as sort of centers of power the Iranians I think are trying to challenge that they're also trying to sort of just make the Americans war weary and try and see if they can get some sort of concession from them uh, the, the, well, the US has a lot of ability to hurt Iran and so yeah. um, I think the Iranian government hopes that by putting the Americans under pressure, the Americans will take off some of the pressure in order to get relief in the region. Mm. Well, it, it, well, I think there are probably some that may argue that uh, the Biden administration's, shall we say, appeasement of Iran over this, the life of this administration um, has certainly sent a message to Iran that, that America's... If not weak, it's 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 not as strong and scary and dominant. And perhaps this is Iran's moment. So the Trump administration was kind of all over the place on a lot of its foreign policy, with the exception of Iran, where it was mm. pretty consistently hardline against Iran. Um, they uh, infamously killed uh, the leader of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is probably the most important uh, influential part of the Iranian government. Mm. Um, in uh, uh, that guy, Qasem Soleimani, in what was it, 2019, mm-hmm. 2020, somewhere around there. Um, and they, uh, that, they also put on what they called the maximum pressure campaign, where they put very tough sanctions on Iran, particularly its ability to sell oil. Um, and that seemed to be kind of bringing the Iranian regime down. There were very big protests uh, uh, against the Iranian regime. Some of them were sparked by anger around the Iranian government cutting pensions. But other protests were around the uh, the murder by the religious police of a Kurdish young Kurdish woman for not wearing her hijab correctly, um, and that that provoked very big protests by Iranian people against the government. Uh, however, that seems to have been suppressed by force, and the Biden administration, I believe, was at least a little bit held captive by this idea that um, they needed to go back into an Iran nuclear deal to try and prevent Iran from building a nuclear weapon, and. Uh, it got a little bit embarrassing when 
the Biden administration's, I think he was one of the lead negotiators, if not the lead negotiator, a guy called Robert Malley, was suddenly taken off this and started being investigated for ties to Iran. Um, and I think the, the deal, the, there were lots of deal negotiations that they fell apart in, in, in sort of halfway through the Biden administration in its first term. Um, but that sort of idea to just kind of make the Middle East go away is a problem, I think, has, has been a very big part of of, of Biden's uh, uh, White House. Um, I think he's, he's, he's probably terrified in an election year of having some kind of major Middle Eastern dust up. Um, the Middle East is notoriously a place that Americans are very sick and tired of hearing about. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think on many fronts the Biden administration has been trying to sort of just keep all of this stuff on the back burner. And that's perhaps why the Iranians are being a bit more aggressive through their proxies now as they realize that Biden doesn't want to get into a fight with them just before the election, um, which you know would cause Trump to immediately accuse them of being a warmonger who's you know getting us into another Middle Eastern quagmire. Yeah. Well, it is, and as you say, it's an election year in America, and at the moment we're looking at Trump versus Biden, which is probably enough to make your hair stand on end as, as, as a concept. But this certainly leads to the fascinating discussion about uh, American policy in the Middle East, and maybe we'll need to come back to that sooner rather than later, Nick. But thank you very much. Um, I think... Um, I'm not sure if things are clearer, but we probably have a certain understanding that we lacked at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, and, look, the, uh, the, more you, the more you look into the details of the Middle East, the more complicated it always becomes. Always. So. And, I, and I think that's a problem. Often the, the West still tends to look at the Middle East in terms of Western paradigm rather than uh, a Middle Eastern paradigm. And therein lie probably lie a huge amount of the problems we have in the Middle East. But thank you very much. I much appreciate it. Um, you know, it helps to take the uh, understand the issue better, or maybe, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I'm not. I'm not too sure. I think. I think it's it's that sort of amalgam of issues that just make you realise just how complex and uh, it's almost almost tribal because it's made up of a whole lot of little things that one doesn't think of. So I'll probably see you, have you on again sooner rather than later. And thank you again. Thanks, Sarah.